I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the October 7th Hamas attack, and the bombing of Gaza by Israel in retaliation. Joining us on this edition of the show is William Dow, who, what, wise editor for international coverage. He previously worked for NBC and ABC News in Paris, before signing on as a staff correspondent for Time Magazine based in Cairo, Egypt. He has reported from five continents, most notably the war in Vietnam, the revolution in Iran, the civil war in Beirut, Operation Desert Storm, and Afghanistan. In this conversation, we'll be talking about two of his most recent Who, What, Why articles, Biden's visit may have kept Gaza from boiling over, and hiding in the rubble of Israel and Palestine, opportunity. Now, you may or may not agree with all of William's analysis, but he has a great deal of experience in the region, and as you'll find out in the conversation to follow, has had encounters with figures like Yasser Arafat and members of Hamas, over the years. So I believe he has something of value to share. With all that in mind, let's get right to it with William Dow. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, very happy to have on the show, William Dow. Uh, and b- before we uh, get to the conversation, William, I just want to introduce you. Uh, William Dow is Who, What, Why's editor for international coverage. He previously worked for NBC and ABC News in Paris 
before signing on as a staff correspondent for Time Magazine based in Cairo, Egypt. He has reported from five continents, most notably the war in Vietnam, the revolution in Iran, the civil war in Beirut, Operation Desert Storm, and Afghanistan. How are you doing? Very well. (laughs) So just with that intro in mind, I I was wondering, uh, what do you think, can you give a, a certain perspective on the events we see unfolding right now, uh, you know, with the from from October seventh, with the attack, the Hamas attack of October seventh, to the bombing of Gaza. Now, can you give your perspective as someone who has spent time in the Middle East? Just what do you bring to the table, having been in that region? I, I'm curious what your perspective is based on those past experiences of reporting. Well, I found it about the Middle East in general that there is a downward spiral of uh, one side commits an atrocity, then the other side retaliates with an atrocity that's worse, and then the the first you know side retaliates again with a still worse atrocity. So uh, you have to break that somehow, and uh, I think probably the answer and uh, not being religious or anything, but the answer uh, really came from uh, Jesus Christ, who said, you know, if um, if somebody does something terrible to you, um, leave vengeance to God and basically don't do it yourself. And uh, I, you know, I was based in Cairo for five years uh, covering the Middle East. And uh one of the secretaries in the office who was Egyptian said that the other secretary was trying to get her job and everything and saying terrible things about her. And I said, well, you know, if you don't respond, it will be clear who's doing the wrong. If you respond, nobody's going to know the difference. And she said, I know you're right, but I can't help myself. And I think that's <laughs> that pretty well captures what's going on in the Middle East. Yeah. And uh the first thing you would ask uh, anybody who's covered warfare would ask after an atrocity like the Hamas attack against Israel is what were they after? What did they really want to uh, accomplish? And I, I think the idea was a, it was a trap. Uh, they wanted, in other words, the attack didn't. It did some damage. It killed, you know, seven hundred, eight hundred people, or fourteen hundred altogether, I think now. But that's nothing compared to what could happen in the future. And uh, they, the idea of terrorism. Uh, I mean, I was in the American Army, you know, and we studied uh, terrorism quite a while ago. And uh, they said that no terrorism will never take military victory. You can't get a military victory out of it. The only thing it can do is to get the victim to destroy itself. And if you look at the 9-11 attack, the damage from the attack was 2,000, 3,000 people killed in the World Trade Center. But the damage that the U.S. did to itself afterwards was enormous invading Iraq when it wasn't necessary, um, Afghanistan, we lost 8,000 servicemen as a result of that. And that was triggered by a terrorist attack. So now, uh, you know, George, I mean, uh, Joe Biden 
you know, was warning the Israelis, don't make the same mistake that we made. But unfortunately, after you see these terrible atrocities, it's very difficult to think clearly. And I think that's the problem right now. Yeah, I wanted to get more into uh, Biden's visit uh, to Israel. I know a lot of people are saying, uh, oh, this is Biden showing his unconditional uh, support. Uh, but I think you have a, a slightly different perspective on that in that you wrote in your piece, uh, Biden's visit to Gaza may have kept or Biden's visit may have kept Gaza from boiling over. Uh, my apologies for speaking there. But you have a whole section in that piece entitled Paradigm Shift in U.S.'s Relationship with Israel. Could you talk about what that paradigm shift is and the importance of understanding the relationship between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government before the October 7th attack? Yeah, well, I think I, th I, th I think I said in the piece that I thought that the whole thing was a masterpiece of diplomacy because it wasn't just Biden going to Israel. Uh, uh, Secretary Anthony Blinken, you know, the Secretary of State, went ahead of time and talked to all of the Arab leaders to calm the region down. And he talked with everybody in Israel about, you know, what what to expect, what the thing was about. At the same time, we sent two aircraft carrier battle groups to provide, uh, you know, military assurance that uh, nobody else could step in. But but the real message to uh, to Netanyahu was, you know, watch your step and don't trigger a bigger war. And I think there's been a growing concern that we're now, the world now look at, at it from a global point of view is in a situation very similar to the one that led to the outbreak of World War I, which is a multipolar um, situation in which several major powers, in this case, it's China, Russia, the United States, are maneuvering for position. And we're using surrogate minor powers. In Russia's case, it's Iran. And uh, in our case, it's NATO, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, whatever. We're trying to maneuver those powers in order to guarantee our own position. And the thing is that the, you know, World War I started with the uh, assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria. Nobody cared about the Archduke and nobody cared about the assassination. But there were various um, defense agreements put in place that said, OK, if this happens to you, a minor power, you know, then we will step in and back you up. And that. Uh, cascaded into a, a situation in which the world was polarized and went to war with itself and destroyed practically an entire generation of young men. You know, So we're in a, a somewhat similar situation now because Iran is competing with Saudi Arabia and Turkey to be a regional power. Iran sees itself as ancient Persia, which was the, the opposite power to the Roman Empire and, and, to the, and to ancient Greece. And so Iran has its surrogates in Hezbollah and Hamas, which it's financed, paid and trained and everything. The U.S. has said that uh, our red line is Israel. We will not allow Israel to be destroyed. And we will go to war if that 
if that's the case, you know, well, we're, we're reaching a situation where there's likely to be an explosion, but that explosion could be much bigger than just Israel. It could be the whole Middle East, which would be our entire energy supply. And after that, it could be the world. It could be a nuclear uh, nuclear war. You know, you said that you, you see this uh, atrocity committed by Hamas as setting a trap. Can you explain uh, what you mean by that? How, how could... Israel make the wrong moves in this uh, situation? What what are some of the possible risks at play? Well, a massive invasion of Gaza, in which they level all of Gaza and just, you know, uh, kill a lot of civilians in the process of trying to track down the, uh, the Hamas, uh, would, first of all, it would, it would draw the Israeli army into a quagmire. Uh, and the U.S., Faced this with Fallujah in Iraq, they lost enormous amount of um, you know people as a result. And uh, the Israeli army has not really fought major war in quite a while. I mean, the last time that they really were inv- involved in combat was uh, when they uh, invaded Lebanon in 2006, and uh, they found themselves facing a, uh, a force of Hezbollah that was equal to the Israeli army. They took heavy casualties and they immediately pulled out. So, this, um, in, in, you know, the, a bunch of new recruits, you know, 300,000 recruits have been called up, but they've never seen combat. You're going to put them in the middle of an urban uh, situation. You will take thousands of casualties and uh, that will make the Israeli government unsustainable and probably make it collapse. But beyond that, it will turn the entire Middle East against Israel. And uh, that there will be recriminations that are enormous coming from outside. And Israel had no support whatsoever. So that's one at one level what could happen. The other is once you involve the Israeli army in fighting for its life in Gaza, then uh, there could be an attack from the north by Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has 100,000 trained fighters uh, who have already demonstrated they're very well equipped. They have very good armament and, and they've been trained heavily by Iran. So they could, Israel could find itself in a pincers movement. That's um, very, you know, difficult, I would say. And, and then it, it makes any resolution of the problem impossible. Because what are you going to do after that? And I think when the U.S. was getting ready to move into Iraq, uh, we showed a French film that was called The Battle of Algiers. And it described the French army uh, tracking down the FLN, the Front National de Libération of France, you know. And, and the, arm, the French army went in, they, they tortured, you know, hundreds, thousands of people. And they, they finally eliminated the FLN. They, killed every single member of the FLN in Algiers. And a year later, the FLN was back because the underlying cause was still there. And the underlying cause in, um, um, in Gaza is, is this inequality and uh, you know the, the inequality of the way Israel has treated the Palestinians. And I wouldn't say it's Israel has treated the Palestinians. I would say it's um, 
Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, it's his policy which has caused the problem. And uh, I was just looking at a debate between, uh, you know, uh, Israeli correspondents in the U.S. and in, in Israel, you know, and how, how they see this thing evolving. And they're pointing out that the American Jews or the Jewish community in America uh, sees this primarily as a battle for survival of Israel. But in Israel itself, they see this, a lot of people see this as a mistake made by Netanyahu in following a, a, a wrong policy. And what that policy was, was to ignore the Palestinians and simply um, wall them off with a wall, generally. And, um, and then when you see problems, just eliminate the problem but otherwise just leave them to themselves um, in, a, in a totally impoverished situation and with no hope for the future. Yeah, I was going to say there's, I think there's that line that has come out of the Netanyahu government before about, you know, every few years we have to mow the lawn in right. Gaza. And then there, there's also, I think we should mention, uh, can we talk about Netanyahu's other sort of policies outside of Gaza, uh, particularly with regards to uh expanding West Bank settlements? Well, that certainly Netanyahu, the, the policy which Netanyahu followed was basically the old British colonial policy of divide and conquer. So Netanyahu uh, supported Hamas in Gaza because he knew that would weaken the Palestinian Authority. And he, the Palestinian Authority is now, you know, which, which took over a civil government from the PLO, uh, is so weak that it, it can't do anything, you know. But uh, the problem now is that Israel doesn't want to, um, to administer Gaza, but who is going to administer for it, you know? And, and so in the West Bank, um, there, you know, Israel, you have as many different points of view as you have members of the Knesset. I mean, there are 80 different people who each one sees the situation differently. Some people are ultra nationalists. And so they want to take over the whole West Bank and simply kick the uh, Palestinians out of their homeland, basically. And uh, they say, you know, they can go live somewhere else, but it's ours. And that is not going to work because uh, I don't know if you remember Black September, but Black September resulted when Palestinians went into Jordan and uh, they were going to overtake the Jordanian government in the end. So Jordan kicked them out into Lebanon. And that's what led to the Lebanese civil war. And and so um, so this this thing is not going to work. And um Netanyahu is basically kicking the can down the road and sort of trying to ignore these people. But the population growth meant that um, there were more and more people on less and less land. And what you were doing is essentially creating a pressure cooker that eventually would blow up. And I would say uh, one thing that I, I found very interesting is that the, the military commander of Hamas is um, Mohammed Masri who changed his name to Mohammed Daif, which means um, the visitor or the guest, meaning, and that symbolizes the Palestinian problem because they're, 
they've lost their land because the Israelis have taken it over and they're a guest of somebody else who doesn't want them. And uh, so Masri was born in a refugee camp in Gaza. He grew up facing the Gaza experience with no hope for the future. He finally married, he had a child, and then he had a second child. And um, the Israelis uh, bombed his house, killed his wife, his newborn baby, and his three-year-old daughter. Where do you think Masri is coming from? You talk to Masri about beheading babies. And he says, you beheaded my baby. And, um, you know, so the difficulty in this situation is that you have to see it from each side. And each side has arguments. And each side has a certain amount of right on its side. And the question then is, how do you resolve these differences? I want to delve into that more because I know in your latest article, uh, Hiding in the Rubble of Israel-Palestine is Opportunity, uh, you write a little bit about the looming post-Abbas era. We'll get into that, but I I wanted to hone in on something really quickly here. Can we talk a little bit about the Abraham Accords uh, and, you know, the process of of trying to, you know, normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, This was, of course, uh, done during the Trump era um, and could have suggested the possibility of, you know, kind of a loose alliance, as you put it, between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Uh, You know, this arguably from a Palestinian perspective would have led to, you know, the issue of the occupied West Bank being put into the dustbin of history. Uh, Could you explain that a bit more? And does the Trump era... Uh, play a role in the unfolding chaos? I mean, did it set the stage for some of this? Well, Donald Trump, I mean, uh, it, it's difficult to be diplomatic, but uh, is, I, I would say, is is basically acts like an idiot. You know, I, I don't know if he is or not, but he, but that's the way he acts. And the, the U.S. for a long time played a, uh, was able to play a role as a mediator between um, you know, the Palestinians and Israel and to try to find a solution. And so I, I, I interviewed uh, Arafat's nephew, who was the Palestinian observer at the UN. You know? Oh, really? Okay. And he said, you know, and I also interviewed Arafat, but, but, the, uh, but his nephew said, you know, he said, we know that the Americans are biased. And that they're not objective in this, you know. But he said that we want to talk with the Americans because we know that they're the only ones that Israel will listen to. And so, um, so the the point was that the American embassy was in Tel Aviv, and um, as long as that was the case, it was all right. Trump decided that he would win over uh, American Jewish support by moving the embassy to Jerusalem. In doing that, he crossed a red line. And after that, the United States could no longer play the role as um, an objective mediator. And uh, so he removed the U.S. from the equation. And because out of ignorance, I mean, he didn't do it because he wanted to destroy the situation. or do He didn't know anything about anything. Uh, he he he, does, he 
he doesn't even know he's got golf clubs in, in the United Kingdom. He doesn't know where they are or or how the United Kingdom was voting on Brexit or any, he, this, this is a man who is absolutely, totally ignorant about the world, but yet is able to move a crowd or a mob and, and get them to, you know, to follow whatever he says, you know, so, so, so he caused enormous problems. But when I was in, uh, you know, I was covering the Middle East for five years out of Cairo, but I was traveling all the time in, in all these countries. Israel had dropped to the back burner. In the region, it was not the major issue. And so that's what the Palestinians are concerned about, is that they, you could easily forget them. And uh, the real issue in the Middle East was Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey on the sidelines. And so uh, Iran sees itself as a major power in the world. And it, we don't see it that way yet, but they do. And they want to be a power. They want to be the, the leader of the Islamic world. And, um, and opposing them is Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran was furious that the uh, king of Saudi Arabia claims to be the custodian of the, uh, the holy places of Medina and Mecca. And they felt that that should be internationalized and taken away from Saudi Arabia and, and just made for the Islamic world, not for any one country and everything. But they also see that the, the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia as pawns that Europe uh, basically supported and the United States in order to get the oil. And by leaving the oil in the hands of a single family and to do what it wants, we can take the, uh, the maximum benefit out of that and uh, get all the money for ourselves. And, you know, and there's a certain amount of truth in that. In other words, we probably would not have uh, invaded Iraq to save Kuwait if, um, if it hadn't been that uh, Saddam Hussein, when he was, you know, running Iraq, went through Kuwait and then was going to make a move on Saudi Arabia. And that's why U.S. troops went in and stopped him, and they had to. And in fact, we sent the 82nd Airborne Division in there with enough ammunition to hold out for 48 hours, and the rest was a bluff. And uh, I was I was there at the time. I, w I w went on a U.S. Antietam-class um, uh, guided missile cruiser and um, with a Bahrain television crew, and we were in the command and control room. You could see the entire Middle East on the wall in a, a, a projected map. You know? And every single ship in the area was identified as to, you know, what its purpose was, where it was going and everything. And, and I said, you know, the Russians would give their eye teeth to be here. Why are we here now? Well, Bahrain TV showed three hours of inside the cruiser with an explanation of everything it could do. And uh, Saddam held back, but it was all a bluff. And uh, they, when Saudi Arabia allowed journalists to come in, um, the airplane that carried the journalists in taxied back and forth among these fighters. <laughs> so it looked like they had 10 times the forces that they had. But at that point, Saudi, uh, you know, Saddam could have taken over the whole place. But. Um, 
So I, I'm curious. I, I have to uh, mention this. So there's a lot of different powers in the Middle East. I think people are getting that from this conversation. Uh, but, I, you know, my listeners are going to hate me if I don't ask you this. Uh, you mentioned having interviewed Arafat, and I, I see your article in uh, Time Magazine from October 21st, 1991, Arafat, Don't Count Me Out, uh, with uh, y- yourself and Dean Fisher. Uh, do you have any recollections about that? I mean, what was the encounter with Arafat like? And uh, what were Arafat's views? What did you get from him? And uh, is there anything you got from that encounter that maybe relates to today? Well, I saw Arafat several times. I mean, I was at a PLO conference in uh, Tunisia when when the PLO was still in Tunisia, you know, before. I mean, that was the early days. And Arafat, when you look at him, he, he looks like a bum. You know, he's got a five o'clock shadow. He wears this silly kefia. He's not very tall and he's got a high squeaky voice. But he had an enormous charisma among Arabs, that he could get all of these crazy elements that were in the PLO. I mean, you had Christian Marxists, you had everything in the PLO, you know, and he could get them all together and uh, line them up, you know, and get them headed in, in a single direction. So I, and I, you know, when you meet him personally, you, you suddenly have this warm, charismatic, very soft, gentle charm that he's got. And I thought he was could have been a tremendous asset for Israel. I mean, he could have been the one who could have gotten the Palestinians in order. And if Israel worked with the Palestinians, in other words, the Palestinians have the same personality as the Israelis. Basically, they're not very different. And the Palestinians are rejected by most other Arabs for being too too dynamic, too, they're a class A personality in a class B environment. You know? And so if Israel worked with the Palestinians, they could be a powerhouse that would be fantastic. You know? But it would require getting over these um, memories of atrocities and everything, you know, and, and, and seeing each other as people. And I, uh, you know, and it, it happens. I mean, I was just in Berlin and um, I was in Berlin when the Berlin Wall was up. And if you stepped into East Berlin, you went through Checkpoint Charlie. It looked like you were stepping back into the 1930s. Uh, when I went to Berlin just recently, I couldn't recognize, first of all, I didn't know where the wall was. It's now represented by a bunch of tiles that are in the ground, you know. And I, I stayed in a hotel in East Berlin that was the former Jewish quarter, which all these you know people had been uh, deported and killed and everything. It's now full of people that are Jewish from Israel. And they're all doing business and having a great time, you know, and, and you go to cafes, they're all there. And, and you know, it's, it's terrible, but nobody really cares about what happened in, <laughs> before. You know, it's, life moves on. And um, so if Israel could reach that point with the Palestinians, it would be a powerhouse. But it would require developing economically and, and you know, with education and schools and everything. That's interesting you say that, that, that you think um, Arafat could have been like an asset to Israel in a way, because 
One of the lines I keep say, seeing uh, brought up is that I've seen people say this is actually Arafat's fault because of uh, Camp David in 2000. People say, oh, he was given that generous offer and he walked away. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Arafat, if, if he had a great weakness, it was that he saw himself as a president. You know, and the definition of a president is somebody who presides over people who have different opinions. So Arafat was constantly taking the consensus of what did all of the Palestinians think. And then he followed that instead of leading it. And he should have been more of a leader, more like Netanyahu in his head. But um, he was too much of, um, too much um, willing to accept the kind of, um, you know, the opinion of these people. And these people are totally in outer space, a lot of them. You know, and I, I went, to, I was in Gaza. I went down and interviewed the heads of Hamas. They are insane. And the, the closest thing I could compare them to is the Christian right in the United States. You know, I mean, they're the Trump rightists, you know. They're fanatics, ideologues who, uh, who don't really reason about what is going to happen, you know. So, um, yeah, but I but, you know, when you meet these people and I was at a PLO conference and uh, so I ran into Abu Nidal, who did the Achille Laro hijacking, you know, and he had just tried to land a terrorist group in Tel Aviv and it had been rounded up by the Israelis and arrested. And I said, well, so I walked up to him in the lobby, you know, during the one of these PLO meetings, you know, and I said, well, you know, you, you, you tried to do all these things. I said, you know, you did the Achille Lauro hijacking and you killed this, uh, this crippled old man in a wheelchair. And I, I said, now you've landed this commando group on the in Tel Aviv and it's they're all arrested and everything. I said, everything you've done has failed. I said, do you, did you ever think that maybe you should take a different approach? <laughs> and he said, well, some people thought it was a good idea. Some people thought it was a bad idea. And he says, you know, you, you try these things. And, you know, and it was just like talking with an ordinary person. You know? And I, I remember, uh, like, before Hezbollah took over in South Lebanon, it was uh, the Shiite uh, leader. was It was a group called Amal. And it, it was run by a guy named Nabi Berry. And I used to spend a lot of time talking with him. And he was just a really charming, nice guy. You know, it's like George Bush, somebody you'd like to have a beer with. But um, when he had a disagreement, he would fire a couple of artillery shells into a housing project to, to send a message, you know, so. That's interesting. Since we're, we, we mentioned Hamas a few times already, but in, in one of your articles, you mentioned that you know, there's a political wing of Hamas and a military wing. And I've heard certain people say that there may be tensions within Hamas. I think you allude to that in your latest article. Could you speak to that? Well, I think we're getting a lot of reports now that, um, you know, nobody agrees with anybody in this area. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of people in Hamas feel that, uh, you know, Mohammed Masri made a tremendous mistake and this is not the kind of thing and this is not the kind of thing that uh 
you know, uh, average Arabs want to do. They don't want to kill people and they don't want to shoot old people or kill babies or do anything like that. Real quick, too, uh, if I could, I was going to say, I mean, there's this completely blows out of the water the um, arrangements that Hamas and Israel had with regards to the worker visa programs before October 7th. So I'm assuming there's elements of Hamas that are like, well, you've just blown this out of the water. It's it's not going to happen now. So um, I don't know if you go ahead and continue. I just wanted to well, add input. I, th- I think you you see this in in human developments, you know, everywhere. I mean, you've got, you know, like you had the weather group here that decided that they were uh, oh, the weather kind of correcting by blowing up laboratories. And you've got uh, animal rights activists who kill people because they uh, they want to save animals. And you've got um, the abortion movement, you know, I mean, the right to life movement that, that blows up uh, uh, medical centers because they want to protect the right to life. So what's the difference between that and Hamas? You know, it's, it's all it's the same kind of human reaction to a situation and deciding to to choose violence instead of, uh, you know, talking to people. And uh, I heard j- just in the U.S. Congress, you know, these these eight guys that, that s- sabotaged the U.S. government for what reason? Nobody knows. But I, I heard uh, some Republican congressmen talking and saying, well, uh, we can't deal with Democrats. They're the evil. So we've, we've got to, even if it means that the United States is destroyed, we've got to hang on to our ideology no matter what happens. You know, and that's, well, the Arabs are no different. <laughs> what you're sort of saying is that uh, an element of Hamas uh, is worried that this could kill their uh, political relevance. Well, and, and and also they don't like killing people. Right. You know, I mean, they're not for that. And, you know, but I, I'll i tell you, I, I was at the first turnover of the Sinai Desert to uh, uh, to Egypt. And so I was uh, working for ABC and I was driving around in a car in Cairo with uh a camera crew and the office manager was an Egyptian former colonel and his group had been wiped out during the 1973 war and everything. And so I, uh, we're talking about politics, you know, and he said, well, you know, this is Israel's kill them all. He says, and I said, well, you know, knowing your point of view, I said, do you think the Israelis are making a mistake turning over the Sinai to Egypt? He said, yes, we're going to kill him. It'll just make us closer, you know, and everything. And so I said, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but Israel has probably 100 atomic bombs. And I said, if it gets to the point where it looks like you're going to actually succeed, they will personalize Cairo. It will be uh, just a large hole in the ground. And so he said, you don't understand, you're American. He says, we don't care. And at that point, the cameraman and the sound man <laughs> and the other Egyptians in the car said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> He's speaking for himself, not for us. And you know, so you're dealing with a generational problem. You're dealing with people that came out of extreme violence and are violent, but the younger generation doesn't feel that way. 
And also about the the uh, Dayton Peace Accords, I would say that uh, Sari Nuseba, who's a Palestinian, who's one of the more intelligent, he was the head of Al-Quds University at one point, and he's on the Palestinian Authority, I think, to represent Jerusalem. Is a very, very intelligent guy, you know. And so he said, we were talking about the uh, Oslo peace talks, and he said, until the Oslo peace talks came up, Hannah Ashrawi, who was representing the Palestinians. I, I know had Hanan. I've had her on the show before. Yeah, she had never read the Dayton Accords. She never bothered to read them. And so, so um, Sari Nuseba said that the big problem with the Palestinians was that they were rom- romantic revolutionaries. In other words, they were fighting for a cause, but they didn't know what the cause was. And they could never define what it was that they really wanted. And unless they defined, you know, what what it was you could give them, uh, there was no way to end the thing. And so this whole process has has forced people to define what they want and who they want to be. And the the danger for the Palestinians is that they become like the Kurds, you know, and the Kurds are an entire nation without any land. They sort of they exist in, partly in Iran, partly in Turkey, partly in, in Iraq, but they have nothing that they can actually call their own. And that's, you know, that's that's what this this is in danger of becoming, you know, for the Palestinians. And also, I would say other one other thing is that Israel would not have survived if it had not been for Jews in America. I mean, it was it was really the American Jewish community which supported Israel's survival and, and, and made it exist. Well, right now you have Palestinians who have spread throughout the entire Middle East. If you go to the Gulf, all of the administrative jobs, the executive jobs are done by Palestinians. They're in every single emirate, in, in Kuwait, in um so this is a tremendously powerful force. These are people who are tremendously successful in business. They represent a lot of money, and they're not going to let their people be destroyed. You know, so the only way is to to stop fighting, get down, and talk. Just a few more things, since we were talking about potential divisions in within Hamas, and in in your article, you say that you know it may seem absolutely you know, crazy given current conditions, but we have precedents for history uh, when it comes to the possibility that, you know, the elements of Hamas's political wing could break off and form their own party. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then also about just the general gist of your, uh, the looming post boss era section of the hiding in the rubble of Israel and Palestine lies opportunity article. Yeah. Well, the greatest error that was made uh, by the Bush administration, of which there were many errors, but the, the, the most tremendous error was Paul Bremer, who uh, was you know, representative of Kissinger Associates. So he was made the, the special envoy to organize everything in Iraq. And he said, OK, no Ba'athist, nobody who was in Saddam's political party could take part in the government or the army. You cut out there for a second. You said no. professional. You said no. No Okay. Yeah. And in other words, no member of the Ba'ath Party 
which uh, bin Saddam's party, could be part of the new Iraq. So all of these people who were trained military officers, trained by the U.S., by the way, uh, because Saddam had been an American ally until we decided he wasn't, you know, uh, they were all cast out. So what did they do? They joined the insurgencies. And they fought against the U.S., you know, so so Bremer's mistake of not trying to decide who among these people they could actually use uh, created an unending war that finally we lost. And uh, I don't know what the think. I still don't know what the thinking of these people. I mean, it was Dick Cheney, basically, and and. Um, uh, Wolfowitz and, um, you know, Rumsfeld, who 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 define the State Department said, when you go into Iraq, if you you're going to win easily. But what do you do afterwards? And these people refused to think about what would happen afterwards. They were going to go in, uh, overturn the thing and then pull out, leaving everything in a mess. And so I think what Biden is saying now is think about what comes afterwards. So uh, I was just looking at a, uh, a series of experts from Harvard that had a, a symposium on this. And they said the first thing it has to do is that the, uh, the Palestinians have to have somebody represent them that they believe in. That, that at that point, that person can unify the Palestinians and negotiate with Israel to finding a solution. So if Israel uh, finishes taking over in Gaza or whatever it does, if it can find the right people who the Gazans feel has credibility, they can rebuild the Palestinian Authority and then negotiate with it. And the Palestinian Authority will keep everybody in line, you know, keep the crazy elements out. But that's what that's everybody agrees that that has to be done. Now the thing is, Mahmoud Abbas, who's the uh, uh, the, the president of the Palestinian Authority now, is 88 years old. He's getting a little up there compared even to Biden, you know. And uh, but he could be uh, uh, somebody to to start creating a new organization now. Now, so what I said in the article is, if you think this is impossible, look what happened in Ireland. The IRA was uh, even more vicious than um, than Hamas, and yet uh, they were able to break away the political faction and um, and create a, a organization that they could negotiate with, and, and and it's worked out pretty well because really nobody wants to be in a war. I mean, people in Gaza don't want to be fighting. Israel doesn't want to lose, you know, their sons senselessly in something that nobody can. So what happened was a terrible thing. I mean, this was absolutely outside of the human human civilization. It was a return to bestiality. But But how are you going to improve it by becoming bestial yourself? You can't. And, and you know, we face this in, in Africa with um, these child soldiers who were, uh, you know, forced to assassinate their parents and cut off their arms and limbs and things like that. 
and yet they could be rehabilitated and re-entered. It's a, it's a long, painful process, but you can do it. And uh, but I don't. I'm not suggesting doing that with Hamas. But I think that um, I think sort out the military people, send them somewhere else, and um, find the political people that you can talk to, and 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 try to do something with them. And you know, in World War II, the U.S. took over uh, North Africa, which was run by the Vichy French, but they then had to sort out who are the administrators we can still use. Because otherwise, the whole the whole thing would have just collapsed. So you're saying we have to look at those elements within Hamas, you know, going forward, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and a guy um, I I had worked with uh, Martin Griffiths is the uh, UN Undersecretary now, you know, trying to resolve the situation. I worked with him in in Indonesia. Because uh, he would, he had become frustrated with the UN, and he uh, he set up his own group called the uh, Henri Dunant uh, Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, and uh, so he was trying to negotiate a uh, ceasefire between um, the uh, breakaway movement in Aceh, Indonesia, and uh, and the government in Jakarta, and so uh, the move his negotiations were so secret that uh, everybody was ready to forget about them, you know. So so my job was to go there and lead a group of 40 journalists on a uh, dog and pony show to go around Aceh having uh, town meetings and dis- discuss, you know, discussing whether the benefits of having peace, you know. And I said, look, uh, you know, Israel's got one of the best armies in the world it had at that time. And I said, um, and... And they have not been able to resolve the situation with the Palestinians. So I said, you have one of the worst armies in the world. <laughs> and instead of a desert, you've got a jungle that's impenetrable. So they agreed on the uh, ceasefire. And then there was so much testosterone, they went back to war. And finally, it was solved by the uh, Indian Ocean tsunami. And everybody said, that's an act of God. So I guess we'll stop fighting. <laughs> Before closing out, uh, so basically, you're uh, one of the things you're saying is that a, a boss is getting up there in age. I mean, th- that is a big question at play going forward: is who will replace him? Well, I think, frank, frankly, I I've always thought that Sari Naseba was uh, a tremendous person. You know, I mean, he's Oxford educated. He's uh, he understands the whole thing. He's very objective. He's he's not anti-Israeli. He uh, he sees it as something that has to be resolved. I would think that he would be a, a key person. Uh, David Remnick of the New Yorker uh, suggested that you know like a decade ago, and somebody said, "How many regiments does he have?" So that shows, you know, in other words, the thinking was that if you didn't have enormous military power. You couldn't have any political influence, but I don't think that's the case. And I, I think if Israel and uh, some elements within Palestinians want to actually w- work on something as genuine, but I think they probably have to get rid of Netanyahu. And uh, yeah, you pretty much explicitly say in the in the latest article that you wrote that you know Netanyahu does not want uh, a two state solution. That's sort of been off the table. Let's 
let's just keep the occupation going on indefinitely, essentially, is Netanyahu's uh, strategy so far. Yeah, and at this this Harvard seminar was uh, Edward Jurijian, who was an American ambassador. I interviewed him when he was in Turkey, but he was also ambassador to Jerusalem. I mean, uh, he was in Syria, I guess, at the time. And he had the, you know, he had the clearest take on the whole thing. And he said, you know, in the end, it's land for peace. And that's and the population explosion is is making that a diminishing opportunity. And and I what do you mean by I, the population explosion? Well, the, the population is expanding. So there's so there's more people on the same amount of land. So resolve this now before it becomes impossible to resolve. And uh, and one other thing I would say that, you know, involuntarily, I've spent a lot of my life looking at different warfares and stuff like that, you know. And Israel had a, uh, a closing window of opportunity in that in the 1948 war, when they were established, we had single shot rifles, occasionally a hand grenade and, and one or two light mortars. Now you've got Abrams tanks and uh, F-16s and everything. So the advantage that Israel had of being, you know, one Israeli could hold off 10 Arabs is no longer the case. And um, you have to look at the relative population. I mean, Israel has 7 million Jews and 2 million Arabs in Israel itself. The Arab population is 456 million. You've got 7 million people stuck in an environment that outnumbers them enormously, you know. So perpetual warfare is not a solution. I mean, this ultimately, this is going to require a political solution. The, the Israel-Palestine question is not going to be solved by war. It's going to be solved by a political solution, I think. Yes, and, it, and it's going to be resolved by being honest. Because uh, listening to, you know, I listened to the... Uh, uh, Minister for Intelligence in Israel, you know, uh, she's a total nutcase, you know. I mean, and 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 some of these these military guys are just, you know, don't bother me with the facts. Let's just go kill them. And that's, you know, those people have to be, you know, taken out a little bit, you know. And it's and it's, yeah. And so, so the best thing that could, Israel could do right now is to stage elections about two or three months from now and change the government. So I just wanted to say in closing, you know, I think at the end of your latest article, you talk a little bit about what Hamas's motivations were. And I think it's obvious to a lot of people that I think a group like Hamas saw uh, Palestine as being an issue that was put on the back burner. And in a way, this attack was saying, you know, do we have your attention now? Uh, And you quote uh, that Hamas official that was interviewed in The Economist as saying, either we die slowly or we die taking the occupation with us. Uh, They have our attention now, I I suppose, is how we could put it. Uh, And, you know, it's at a tragic cost. Um, 
what do you want to say in closing about that and, and how you wrapped up that piece? Well, you have to interpret this correctly, because like when the Pentagon, the Pentagon showed the uh, Battle of Algiers, the film, to all of its people, you know, and the conclusion that people came out was that uh, the, the, the Cheney Rumsfeld crowd was uh, let's torture people. And the fact that it didn't work, just they missed. And um, so, you know, everybody has been, you know, awakened by this, this series of atrocities. But the way they respond to it, uh, you know, respond in the right way. And I think that's what uh, Joe Biden and that's what Joe Biden is warning them is don't make the same mistakes that we made. Don't have black sites and, uh, you know, beating people up and doing stuff like that. And, uh, you know, deal with it um, humanely by trying to start a conversation and find out what people want and, and try to give them what you can of what they want, you know. But I, I would also just say one last thing in, in closing is that this, when you abandon people in a refugee camp, you leave them to their own devices. It's like being in a prison. And we're finding that prisons are the best universities for criminals to learn how to really be a criminal. You know, you're an amateur when you go in, you're a professional when you come out and a professional enemy of society. And, and these refugee camps are doing that for insurgencies around the world. I know I have to let you get going because we've gone an hour, but one last thing popped in, in my mind that I really want to get your thoughts on if you have a moment. I think there is eventually going to be investigations into the October 7th attack and what I would say is the uh, rather incredible uh, intelligence and operational failure. Uh, I know that we don't have all the details now, uh, but we had, I believe it was uh, Representative Michael McCall um, in that Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, I, I forget the exact name of it, saying that there was, um, you know, three days warning by Egypt about this attack. Uh, I, I know we can't get into all of it, but what do you think is going to come out of the just massive intelligence failure uh, from this October 7th attack? Well, be, before the U.S. went into Iraq, we had war games. And, and a, a U.S. Marine colonel was asked to play the part of the Iraqis. And um, so what he did was avoid all uh, electronic communications and have all the messages carried by courier. And that's what Hamas did. And so uh, Israel had gotten lazy and was picking up telephone conversations and trying to to uh, to calculate what was going to happen by electronic intercepts, and I think what the thing showed is that that's not enough. And uh, basically, Hamas just used very primitive techniques, and the uh, the sophisticated defenses were uh, bypassed by these primitive techniques. So I think that's the the question. But the 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 real issue is not why the intelligence failed. The real issue is. What are you going to do now? It's policy problems. It's 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 a failed policy on the part of you know, and everybody tries something different, like Abu Nidal. 
you know, Netanyahu is abonido for policy. You know, it's just picked the wrong one. Is there anything you want to say as well to, I, I have both Palestinian American and um, Jewish American listeners. And, you know, I know people, I, I know people that are in Gaza right now, photojournalists and, and people that work out of Gaza. So I'm very worried about them. And I think uh, for people that have, have uh, family and friends in Israel, I, I have friends in Israel Everyone is very high on emotions right now. Do you think, I mean, I know you're looking for a silver lining in all of this, but I feel like emotions are so high. How can we get to the point of really talking in, in a way where we're listening to each other? Well, by talking. And I and I think that, you know, I, I take Paris as an example because I lived in Paris for quite a while, you know. And there's the Jewish quarter of the Marais, you know, which with people that were deported during the war. But then there's the new Jewish quarter, which is Jews coming from Israel and Arabs coming from uh, Morocco and Algeria, and everywhere else. They all live together in the same quarter because they like the same food. And and basically they think alike. And uh, so once you can get into a dialogue and you realize that you both have the same taste, you like the same things, and you want the same things, then that's great. So just break up this sort of group identity and and, and see each other as individuals. Well, hey, William Dow, I want to thank you. I kept you a few minutes over time. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? You're, you're at Who, What, Why? Uh, anything else you want to plug, or how can my listeners just well, keep I've up with what you're doing? I've also started a Substack column, but... Uh, that's uh, called a different place. I thought that was, <laughs> but uh, and uh, otherwise, yeah. And how how can my listeners get to your Substack? Uh, it's well, it's uh, either William Dowell or uh, uh, at a different place. It's called. Well, thank you so much for coming on Parallax Views. I greatly appreciate it, and so do my listeners. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with William Dow, and that you'll consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not afraid.